Our sermon text is from 1 Thessalonians 3, but I'm going to start in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Hear God's word. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And now verse 9, starting the sermon text. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us to learn how to pray as Paul prayed and how to love one another as Paul loved the saints, even as he imitated our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good to see a lot of new faces this morning. Welcome if you are visiting for the first time or returning for the second or third time. Uh, if, if, if you haven't, you probably figured out by now, but we, we follow this bulletin, this liturgy. And if you didn't get a handout, a sermon handout, you may want to slip to the back and, and grab one. It's got the text that we'll be studying and uh, 
a simple outline uh, for the sermon. And you can turn in your Bibles, if you want, to 1 Thessalonians 3. We'll be studying the prayer at the end of that chapter today. Last week, we learned that to pray like Paul, we must love like Paul. The passage I just read from the handout reveals Paul's heart for the saints. His prayers for the Thessalonians sprang from a bottomless well of affection for them. And last Sunday, we considered that our prayers for the people of God must also spring from an intense love for those we're praying for. Last week's sermon was based on the verses that are grayed out in today's handout. We discovered three things from those paragraphs. Number one, prayer should spring from a desire to be with God's people. To love God's people is to love to be with God's people. Number two, it should spring from a desire to seek the good of God's people. And number three, it should spring from a desire to hear about the love and the steadfast faith of God's people. In today's sermon, we'll look at the actual content of Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, which we find at, in the last five verses of chapter 3, the end of 1 Thessalonians 3, which is the bold, the portion that's in bold in your handout. And we're going to think about this text with the following question in mind, or questions. How do God's people feature in this prayer? In other words, how does Paul pray for God's people, and how should we lift up God's people in prayer? I've benefited greatly over the years from studying Don Carson's exposition of this text. And the four exhortations on the handout are the fruit of that study. Paul, Paul's love drives him to do four things in his prayer for the Christians in Thessalonica. And, and your love, our love for the brethren, should drive you and, and me to the same four things in prayer. For the brethren. Number one, you should pray with thanksgiving for God's people. Number two, pray that your presence supplies what is lacking in God's people. That's in verses 10 and 11. The first one, pray with thanksgiving for God's people, is verse 9. Number three, you should pray that love increases and abounds among God's people, verse 12. And number four, you should pray that Jesus, in preparation for his coming, establishes the hearts of God's people to be blameless in holiness. That's verse 13. First, pray with thanksgiving for God's people. Now, at the beginning of this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had already reported, as he often does at the beginning of his letters, his gratitude to God for them, for the Thessalonian Christians. Now, here in chapter 3... In verse 9, he expresses the same note of thanksgiving, but with even greater exuberance. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And before our God means when he's in prayer, when he's before the throne of God. He feels joy because of their faith. And so we learn an important lesson from this verse about how to give thanks. 
And the lesson is this. While it's true that our gratitude should be direct, uh, directed primarily to God, it's also true that we should encourage others by letting them know that we're thankful for them. Let me say that again. While our gratitude should certainly be directed chiefly to God, He's the one to whom we give thanks for all things, we should not forget to encourage others by letting them know what it is about them that, we, that we're thankful for, that we give thanks for. Paul avoids two extremes here, and so should we. On the one hand, he avoids flattery. He always avoids flattery when he's giving thanks. He doesn't, he doesn't go, go around complimenting everyone for everything regardless of, of the, the quality of, of the work or the outcome. He doesn't distribute praise indiscriminately or insincerely. People who do that often do it because they're looking for praise in return. But Paul never descends to flattery. He also, though, avoids the other extreme, which is thinking that since all thanksgiving finally belongs to God alone, we should rarely, if ever, express gratitude to our fellow human beings for anything at all. This thinking is, is overly scrupulous and not biblical. It, it recognizes, rightly, that anything good we have or are or do springs ultimately from God and from His grace alone. However, this thinking fails to recognize that we should encourage other believers, the, the people that we worship with, the people, our brothers and sisters who have been saved along with us by God, we should encourage them when we see that God is producing good fruit in them. And we should encourage them precisely by telling them how thankful we are to God that His grace is at work in their lives. And so Paul avoids both of these extremes in his letter to the Thessalonians and in his other letters to the churches. He avoids flattery and he avoids keeping his gratitude to himself or only between him and God. We regularly find the apostle, and in fact, we find him in at least 14 places, we find the apostle encouraging Christians by thanking God out loud, as it were, for his work of grace in their lives. Maybe to be a little bit more accurate, we see Paul encouraging believers by telling them that he regularly, in his daily prayers, thanks God for what he's doing in them. He tells them how he prays and how he thanks God. Notice in verse 9 how Paul does two things at the same time. He encourages the Thessalonians in their spiritual growth, and simultaneously, he insists that God is the one to be thanked for this growth. So do you see how Paul builds them up and humbles them at the same time? In the same sentence, there's no way for these believers in Thessalonica to, to, to come away from this uh, patting themselves on the back for their good works. That would miss the point. God alone is to be praised for the signs of grace among them. And yet they can't help 
but feel encouraged and edified to find out that the Apostle Paul himself rejoices over them because of God's work in their lives. Just imagine for a moment how edifying it would be to receive this kind of encouragement from the Apostle Paul, from his own hand. And this, this approach is standard for Paul. There are at least 13 other places in his letters where he expresses the same kind of thanksgiving for the saints. You probably don't have time to, to write these down as I say them, if you're taking notes, but I'll list the other 13 passages where Paul does the same thing as he does here in verse 9. And this will, just, this will give us a feel for how often Paul tells the saints of his gratitude to God for them. He does it in Romans 1, verse 8, in the following verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and following. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and following. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 and following. Ephesians 1, 3 and following. Ephesians 1, 15 and following. Philippians 1, 3 and following. Colossians 1, 3 and following verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and following. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and following. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses, verse 3 and following verses. And then in 2 Timothy 1, 3 and Philemon, verses 4 to 6. Think of how a church, how our church, any church, any congregation would be transformed if all its members made a practice of not only thanking God for one another, but also telling others what it is about them that we thank God for. Brother, I'm thankful for how you go out of your way to engage in meaningful conversations with visitors after church. Sister, I, thank, I, I give thanks to God for your ministry of encouragement to the saints. It brings me great joy to see you building up others with your sincere words of affection. Brother, I thank God for all the ways you show hospitality to God's people. Sister, I'm grateful for the Christian joy that exudes from you. It is obvious to me that God is at work in you. Brother, I, I'm thankful for the victories God has been giving you over your besetting sins. Of course, it would be hypocritical to say such things to, to your fellow church members unless you do actually thank God along these lines. So what we need in our congregation are praying saints who thank God for his people, who thank God for his work in his people, and then who tell God's people what they're thankful for. Will you do that with me? So the first point is to pray with thanksgiving for God's people, even as Paul does. And even though your gratitude should be directed to God, remember to encourage others by letting them know what you're thankful for, that you're thankful for them and what God is doing in them. The second point is to pray that your presence, your physical presence, your face-to-face -face presence, supplies what is lacking in God's people. We pray most earnestly night and day, Paul says in verse 10, 
that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And in, in, in the next sentence, the next verse, verse 11, Paul glides right into a prayer that refers to God in the third person. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May God bring us back to you. Paul wants to reunite with these new believers in order to build them up in their new faith. Up in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul showed remarkable awareness of the factors that hindered him from returning to Thessalonica. He, he said he wanted to visit them, but Satan hindered him. And we don't know what form Satan's opposition took, <clears throat> but here in chapter 3, verse 11, we see Paul praying against it. He's praying against that opposition. He's asking God to clear the way for him to be with the Thessalonian Christians once again. <coughs> the, the, the satanic hindrances don't discourage him from praying. Instead, they incite him to greater fervency in his prayers. <clears throat> in verse 10, Paul says something almost in passing that demands our attention. He says that he makes his petitions night and day. What's that mean? <clears throat> well, it doesn't mean he prays 24 hours a day without eating or, or sleeping or doing anything else. Nor does it mean that Paul is always in a so-called spirit of prayer during all hours or something like that. In other places... Paul says that he prays for the saints continually, or always, or constantly. Here and elsewhere, he says that he prays night and day. What he means is that during his regular times of prayer, which would have been multiple times a day, he remembers the Thessalonians before God. Paul had set times during every 24-hour cycle when he would stop stop whatever he was doing and, and just pray. And, and this wasn't unique to Paul. He was just doing what the faithful, the, the people of God had always done. Paul likely would have prayed at least three times a day, just as David did. King David says in Psalm 55, 17, Evening, morning, and at noon... Will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Daniel 6 also tells us that the prophet Daniel prayed three times a day. That was his practice. There are at least a couple lessons for us here as we think about Paul's regular times of prayer. One is the importance of regular, frequent prayer times. There's a strong biblical precedent for praying three times a day. And, and the other one is the importance of re remembering the right things to pray for. So, so the needs of the day, the needs of our congregation, are regular prayers and biblically informed prayers. And we'll talk more about those two things in an upcoming sermon on Colossians 1. For now, it's enough just to note Paul's regularity and consistency in praying for other believers. 
his, his others centeredness. He prayed, his, his prayers were full of intercession for other people, for other Christians. His, his consistent times of prayer looked very different from the inconsistent, me centered prayers that many of us lapse into often. The burden of Paul's constant prayer for the Thessalonians is that he might once again see them face to face, in person, in order that he might supply what is lacking in their faith. Now, it sounds odd to us to hear Paul talk this way about their faith. What's he he mean when he says, what is lacking <clears throat> what is lacking in their faith? Well, it's obviously true that they that they were that their faith wasn't fully formed. These new Christians needed instruction in the Lord. Paul had only got to be be with them uh, for two or three weeks, and the deficiency in their faith was not a matter of disobedience or rebellion. It was simply a matter of ignorance. Their faith was real and saving faith, and it was already producing faithfulness and fruit, and Paul's giving thanks for that fruit, but they needed more biblical teaching. They needed to be taught the the whole counsel of God. Paul had only been able to stay with them for a short time, which wasn't enough time to establish them in the scriptures. And so now while he's in Corinth, he he writes back to the Thessalonians to tell them of his desire, which is accompanied by his prayers, that God would send him back to them for the purpose of building them up in their Christian faith. He wanted to do this face to face with them. Paul's petition in verses 10 and 11 sheds light on what is important to Paul and how committed he is to his brothers and sisters in the Lord. But it also sheds light on on another thing. Paul didn't separate his prayers for God's people from his service to God's people. Do you see that? His intercessory prayers for the saints... And his ministry to the saints mingle together. He he doesn't just ask God to somehow supply what is lacking in their faith. Rather, Paul prays that he himself might be the means, the instrument that God uses to supply what is lacking in their faith. A, A little bit like Isaiah in response to his vision of the Lord, of of Yahweh and Almighty God in in Isaiah 6. Here I am, Isaiah says. Send me. I'll do it. I'll be the one to do what needs to be done. Intercessory prayer isn't a substitute for physical, face-to-face service, ministry. They go together. Prayer and ministry are a team. When you pray for the believers, it will create in you a longing to serve those 
you're praying for. This was true of Paul, even with respect to believers he had never met. Remember, he, when he wrote the book of Romans, he had not been there yet. He had not met these Christians in Rome. He'd only heard about them. He may have met some of them in other places, but he'd never been to Rome. And yet at the beginning of his letter to them, he says this. I constantly make mention of you, always in my prayers, asking if perhaps now, at last, I might succeed by God's will in coming to you. For I long to see you in order to share some spiritual gift with you that you may be established. And then he goes on to say, and so that you may help me, may establish me too. It was mutual. This mindset isn't just for apostles or super Christians or church leaders. It should be in all of us. Your prayers for the brethren should mingle with your ministry to the brethren. So don't just pray that God will encourage a dejected saint Ask God to make you the means of that person's encouragement. And then prayerfully write that fellow believer a note or call them or visit them or start a conversation with them. Don't just pray that God will strengthen the faith of the person who seems to be going adrift. Ask God to use you and even your physical presence, your face-to-face ministry to that person to Supply what is lacking in their faith. Both in your praying and in your personal service. Strive by God's grace to make up what is lacking in the faith of God's people. And pray that they do the same for you. We all need this. We all have faith that is lacking. That needs to be matured that needs to be filled out. And we need one another for that to happen. God uses the saints for your growth in grace and godliness, for your growth in faith. So let's review briefly the the first two points before moving on to the third. First, you are to pray with thanksgiving for God's people. And although it's true that your gratitude should be directed to God, you should always encourage others by letting them know what you're thankful for. Second, pray that your presence, your face-to-face physical ministry supplies what is lacking in God's people. Pray that God will give you opportunities to minister to people in that way. And now third, pray that love increases and abounds among God's people. Verse 12 says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. The Lord here refers back to the Lord Jesus in verse 11. Maybe a more wooden or literal translation would look something like this. May the Lord Jesus enlarge you and make you abound in love for one another. Paul's asking God to enlarge their hearts by the power of the gospel. They've been given new hearts in Christ, and now Paul wants those, their hearts to, to grow, to expand. And, and this, this is a remarkable emphasis, a, re, a, a remarkable burden when we consider 
the situation. We would expect Paul to be burdened about their lack of doctrinal understanding, which was certainly real. They, they, they had had very little instruction from the apostle before he was torn away from them, he says. We might expect him to ask the Lord Jesus to make them increase and abound in theological insight and understanding. And that would not be a bad prayer. In fact, in other places, we do see Paul praying for, for something very much like that, that, that the saints would abound in knowledge and depth of insight or discernment. But he doesn't restrict his prayers to doctrinal considerations. In fact, theological knowledge isn't even his main concern here with these new believers in Thessalonica, whose theology was no doubt lacking. And even in Philippians 1, excuse me, even in Philippians 1 where he asked God to give the Philippian believers deeper knowledge and discernment or depth of insight as one translation puts it, even there he, he mixes it with a prayer for abounding love. In fact, abounding love is, the, is, is at, the, at the root of what he wants there. It's the foundation of that prayer. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And so he only wants their, their knowledge and their depth of insight to grow if, if the love grows along with it. He wants the love to abound in these things. Paul never wants knowledge without love. Without love, knowledge just puffs up. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, but love builds up. If you have the gift of prophecy and if you can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if you have a faith that can move mountains, but you do not have love, then you are nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2. That's why Paul asked the Lord Jesus again and again to enlarge the hearts of God's people and make their love for one another abound. How often does this petition show up in your prayers for the saints, for the members of this body? In the coming year and years, in 2024 and beyond, let's faithfully ask God to enlarge our hearts so that Christian love abounds in and among us as a body. Well, we draw, we draw our final point from verse 13. You should pray that Jesus in preparation for his coming, establishes the hearts of God's people to be blameless in holiness. In verse 13, Paul states the goal of his prayers for the brethren. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. <clears throat> In, in biblical thought, the heart, the heart is, is, is not the, the organ that's, that's pumping blood through our body. 
And, and it's, it's also not only the seat of, of your will and desires and emotions and understanding. It's also where your hidden motives are formed and generated. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul wrote, We speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. If our hearts are established blameless in holiness before our God and Father, if our allegiance to Jesus Christ and our love for the brethren are enlarged or being enlarged, then we don't need to fear that day, the day of the Lord, the day of his coming. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that when the Lord Jesus comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will reveal the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his praise from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. This will be a, a scary day for unbelievers, for those who are not under the blood of Christ Jesus. But it will be a glorious day for those of us whose hearts have been established blameless in holiness by the Lord Jesus Christ and who are under his atoning blood. In a different place, Paul states his goal for believers in more detail. He says this in Philippians 2, Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. <clears throat> this is what Paul prays for. <clears throat> and he prays for these things in light of, in view of, the end. In the light of what he calls here the day of Christ. When the Lord Jesus will come back with all his resurrected saints. Last month, we studied 2 Thessalonians 1, and we saw there Paul doing the same thing he does here in 1 Thessalonians 3. He's praying with the end in sight, and therefore with eternity's values in sight, in view. In his prayers for the saints, his mind and his heart are set on things above, on eternal things. And so when you pray through the directory again this week, do so knowing that the people you're praying for, as well as, as you yourself, are, are moving inevitably, inescapably toward that final day, the day of Christ, the coming of the Lord with all his saints. Do so knowing that the people you're praying for, like you, are those who must give an account to God at the coming of the Lord Jesus with his resurrected saints. This eternal perspective is vital 
It's vital to the Christian life. It's vital to your prayers. There's no prayer you can pray for others that is more fundamental than the one Paul prays here at the end of verse 13. Pray this prayer for all your brothers and sisters this week. Pray it for every member of our congregation by name. Pray that God may establish my heart and all our hearts blameless in holiness in the presence of our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray for that now. Father, thank you for the work of grace that you have begun in every believer here. Use all of us in this congregation, in this local body, to supply what is lacking in one another's faith. We know that you are faithful to do this and that you are able to do this. Lord Jesus, enlarge our hearts. Make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and your Father at your coming with all the saints. Amen.